We've been teaching a series on uh, reigning in life. We want to go a little bit further with that this morning. Paul speaking by the Holy Ghost in verse 17. And he's making a comparison between that which happened when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden and that which was restored when Jesus came to the earth and provided himself a sacrifice for us on the cross. So he says in verse 17, For if by one man, speaking of Adam's offense, death, and he's talking about spiritual death, he can't be talking about physical death because Adam didn't die the day that he sinned, but he did die. He didn't die physically the day that he sinned, but he did die spiritually that day. For if by one man's, one man's offense, death, spiritual death, reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace. The word much more means it's even more true. The word much more in the Greek literally means it shouldn't be compared, but it's the best comparison we can come up with. But it's so far separate that they really shouldn't be in the same sentence. Much more they which receive to take hold of or to act on the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness Those shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. We've made this uh, statement before, but I think it bears repetition. Uh, And that is, I think a lot of things bear repetition. But nevertheless, the Bible is saying without question that through the gift of righteousness and the abundance of grace, we can just identify what those are and take hold of those things. Victory belongs to that individual in every area of life. There's nothing else reigning in life could mean. Now, notice he didn't say reign in heaven. See, a lot of times people want to put the blessings of God off till the sweet by and by. Well, thank God there will be great things in heaven, much greater things than we have here. But that doesn't mean you you don't or can't have anything here. No, it says reign in life. And notice it's not Jesus that reigns in you. It's you that reigns through him. See, a lot of times people want to put it off on the Lord. Well, whatever God's will is, he'll make it happen in my life. No, the Bible says you'll reign. I thought that would excite you. The Bible says you will reign. That's conditional. Obviously, it's conditional because not every Christian reigns. And it's clearly obvious to me, at least, probably to you too, that not everybody understands how to reign. Not everybody understands what the conditions are or how to meet those conditions because there's very few Christians that are reigning in life. So if reigning in life comes through receiving, and again, I'll define that word for you. In the Greek, it means to, re- to take hold of or to act on. If receiving or taking hold of, acting on the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness is a prerequisite to reigning in life, then you can tell who's taken hold of it by the seeing who's reigning. Right? Yet we see certain people throughout the history of the church that have taken hold of this, and we've looked at them like they were supermen. We'll see people that have done exploits. Paul, for example, must know something about it. The Holy Ghost is the one telling him to tell us. So he must know something about it. He certainly reigns in life. Doesn't mean he didn't have any trouble, did it? And he had trouble everywhere he went. You look at the book of Acts, there's only one town that he was not run out of. That would cause most Christian, most preachers that I know of to stop preaching. No wonder God picked Paul. This guy would not give up. I wonder if that has anything to do with it. I wonder if that kind of attitude has anything to do with it. But we've looked at people that have done exploits in the name of Jesus, and we've said, wow, they must have had something extra from God. 
We'll look at men like Smith Wigglesworth, who raised 20-some-odd people from the dead in his ministry, and we'll say, well, he had something extra from God. It was the call of God upon his life. It was the ministry call upon his life that did it. We'll look at people like John Lake, who would see diseases, who, who medical experts, medical doctors would watch diseases die in his hand. We'll say, well, well, yeah, but he was called to be an apostle to Africa. We'll make all kinds of excuses for what the Bible says every believer can have. Much more, they which received to take hold of and to act on. The abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. How does the, uh, how does the gift of righteousness come? Notice it says the gift of righteousness. It didn't say growing in righteousness. Did you know you can't grow in righteousness? When you were born again, you were made righteous according to the Bible. You were made righteous by the blood of Jesus. You can't grow in that. Now, you can grow in the knowledge of that. You can grow in the understanding of that, but you can't grow in righteousness itself. You'll never be any more righteous than the moment that you were born again. When you were the, the, the instant that you were born again, a brand new baby Christian, you were as righteous as you're ever going to get. And I, some people, when you say that, some people will say, yeah, that's right, because I've sure messed up since then. That's not the point. The point is righteousness is yours, and your messing up didn't change that righteousness. You'll never be any more righteous than the day you were born again. You'll be, never be any less righteous than the day you were born again. Now, that doesn't mean you have to walk in it. A lot of people don't. But it's yours because that's the nature that you were changed unto. When you were made a new creation, a new creature in Christ Jesus, it means that you were made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You don't stop being righteous just because you sin. If that were the case, then you have to get born again again. Well, how many times would we have to get born again before Jesus comes back? Folks, if that were the case, suicide would be the answer. No, you don't lose your righteousness. You lose fellowship with God. You'll lose that clear communication between you and him. There'll be the sense of condemnation because it's the Holy Ghost trying to impress upon you in your own spirit to make things right. But you don't lose your righteousness. You can't lose the gift except under extreme conditions. Are you out there? Okay, well then if we take hold of or act on that gift of righteousness, what does that mean? That means you would do more than you do now by letting your mind talk you out of it. That means you would step further into the things of God. You would do the things that you're thinking, your wrong thinking, the sense of guilt and condemnation keeps you from going into now. Not only you know what that is for you. I certainly know what that is for me. I'm pretty sure you know what it is for you too. We all know the place that we come up against. Well, we see what the Bible says and we think, well, yeah, but. Taking hold of that gift of righteousness means you cross that yeah, but. It means you begin to do exactly what the Bible says no matter how you feel about it because you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. I'm not intending intending for this to be a sobering message this morning. But it kind of has that effect on us, doesn't it? Okay, well, what's the other thing? The other thing is receiving, taking hold of and acting on the abundance of grace. What is grace? You'll have all kinds of definitions about grace. My definition of grace is the finished work of Jesus. 
Because everything God did for us, he did according to his grace, the Bible says, and that came by the finished work of Jesus. So whatever Jesus purchased for us, whatever Jesus did for us, that's what the grace of God is. So if you take hold of everything that Jesus did for you and recognize that you have been made righteous, you're not going to be righteous someday when you get to heaven, but you've been made righteous now, that attitude, that action that comes from that understanding will cause you to reign in life. Now look with me to, to, uh, we're here in chapter 5, look back with me to the first couple of verses of the chapter. Notice the context that Paul says this in. Therefore being justified, I'm reading from the King James, the Greek literally says, therefore having been justified. In other words, it's already, it's already happened. It's already taken place. He's writing to people that have been justified. He's writing to people that have been born again. He's writing to people that have been made righteous. Having been justified literally means having been made righteous. Justifying or being justified or the process of justification is the new birth. You are made righteous through the justification that comes from making Jesus the Lord of your life. So having been justified means he's saying, therefore, since you've been made righteous. Now, with that in mind, think about verse 17 again. Much more they which receive the abundance of grace and gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. When we look back at verse 1, he's telling people you've already been made righteous. He's not talking to somebody about someone that they can't be. He's talking about what belongs to them because of what's already happened. Verse 17 should apply to them now. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, by Jesus, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Two things he makes mention of as prerequisites or conditions for reigning in life in verse 17, the gift of righteousness and the abundance of grace. Verses 1 and 2 says, uh, say that we have received by faith the gift of righteousness and by faith we have access into, this, into the abundance of grace. So it's faith is the key. Faith is the key. What is faith? Faith is the evidence of things not seen. In other words, faith is not how you feel. Righteousness is not according to whether or not you feel worthy. Righteousness is according to that which you believe, which you can't see or feel. Well, what can, what do we know based on what we can't see or what we can't feel? The Bible says you've already been justified and made righteous by the blood of Jesus. In other words, righteousness is yours whether you ever feel righteous a day in your life. And this abundance of grace, the finished work of Jesus is yours, whether you ever feel like it's yours or not. Healing is yours whether you ever feel healing power or not. Prosperity and provision is yours whether you ever feel rich or not. Justification from sin is yours whether you ever feel justified or not. Or feel worthy to have been justified. It's all by faith. It's all by faith. Now, why in the world, if it's this simple, and the Bible says it is. I mean, the Bible just lays it out there like, duh. And I don't know about you, but I've had some spiritually duh moments along the way. I expect I'll have a, month, a few left to go. But if it's this simple, why don't people do it? Wrong thinking. 
a failure to meditate on the word and let it become real to us on the inside. And instead, we just go by what other people say and other people's experience and even our own experience. And even well-meaning preachers will talk you out of what belongs to you. I know. But it really comes down to, is the word true or not? If the word is true, you have the capacity. Every Christian, every believer, every child of God has the capacity to reign in life in every area. Well, then, what does the devil use to keep you from taking hold of that? What does the devil use to keep you from reigning in life? Wrong thinking. Well, then, if that's true, Bible says pull down strongholds. A lot of people are thinking that means pull down the devil's territory. Pray, oh, get into this special kind of prayer that only a few select few can do. And boy, then you can pull down the devil's territory. You can really pull down the devil's strongholds. Folks, the strongholds the Bible talked about are between your ears. (laughs) Pulling down strongholds by thinking right. Changing your thinking. Changing your thinking. Now, folks, I want to, I want to really impress upon you this reality. I want you to, to be established in the reality that it's wrong thinking that keeps you out of what belongs to you. And wrong thinking is the only thing that can keep you out. So the strongholds that the Bible talks about or the, the, the walls, the boundaries that the devil tries to place around you to keep you hemmed in or to keep you from taking, taking hold of uh, taking possession of what Jesus already paid for. For example, healing and well-being in every area. Comes down to you changing your thinking to overcome him. Now, turn back with me to Matthew chapter 16. We looked at this last week. If you were with us, you may recall. But I, I want to look at it again. I want to teach a little bit further on it. To be real honest with you, as big as this is on the inside of me right now, I think I could teach on this till Jesus comes back. That may not be very long, but nevertheless, I, I'm, this, is, this has just exploded on the inside of me. And it's led me to some other things too. Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And the answers are really kind of interesting because most of them have to do with reincarnation. The disciples answered and said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. He's already been beheaded. Some say you're Elijah. He left in the whirlwind, the chariots of fire. Hundreds of years ago. Others say Jeremiah. We know Jeremiah died and was buried. Or one of the other prophets. Now one of the other prophets is unclear to me. Whether it means one of the prophets of old. Or you're just a new prophet. I'm not sure which one they mean by that. But I wouldn't expect. Jews particularly. To come up with any of those. Because they don't believe in reincarnation. I guess that means. Nobody knows who you are. But then Jesus turns around and says. But who do you say I am? Verse 15. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ means Messiah. Christ means anointed one. Christ means anointed one. He's talking about the Messiah. Jesus answered and said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Think about what that means. That means you don't believe this because you saw the miracles. Because that's something flesh and blood would have revealed. You don't believe this. You're not claiming this because of what you've seen. It's not the miracles that make people believe. The miracles may encourage people's belief, but it doesn't make them believe. 
Look at Israel. They saw miracles over and over and over again, and they refused to believe. Miracles won't do it in and of itself, but they can sure support something that you've got from the inside. So he said, it's my father that's shown you this, not the miracles. And I say unto thee, verse 18, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock. Now, he's not talking about Peter being the rock. Dear Lord, wouldn't we be in a mess if Peter was the rock? Peter was in and out. Well, what rock does he mean? The knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Upon this knowledge, the knowledge of who Jesus is, I'll go even further, the knowledge of what Jesus accomplished as the Messiah, as the anointed one, the Christ. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, folks, can I ask you a question? And I don't mean this to be critical, but, but let's, let's be wise enough to just see things for how they are. What do you say? We don't have to put, throw off on anybody else to see things for, for, in reality, right? I'm not judging anybody, but that doesn't keep, that doesn't mean I have to keep my eyes shut. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe the church is exhibiting the power that Jesus intended for it to, to exhibit or show forth or manifest when he said he would build his church? Is this the church that Jesus is building, in other words? And that's a tough question, isn't it? Jesus said, upon this rock, the knowledge of, G- of who he is as the Messiah and what he accomplished. We've already talked about what he paid for. Isaiah 53, 5 says he paid for three things. Sin, literally spiritual death, sickness, and poverty. Upon this rock, knowing who he is, what he was sent to do, and what he accomplished. Is this the church that Jesus is intended to build? Anybody want to jump out there and say no? We all know that the answer is no. Nobody really wants to say it. Sounds kind of bad to say it, doesn't it? Okay, let's all agree. We won't say it, but we all know it's no. All right, then here's the next question. Why? Is the church not what Jesus intended to build? Did he fall short on his end? Did he really not do the things the Bible says he did? Did he not pay for spirit, sin and spiritual death? Did he not pay for sickness? Did he not pay for poverty like the Bible says? Well, that can't be. If that's the case, the Bible's not true. And we have no salvation. Because you're saved by the truth of the word. The incorruptible seed of God's word is what you were born again by. Then if he didn't fall short on his end, what's the problem? Wrong thinking. Wrong thinking on the part of the church. In other words, the stronghold that the devil uses through wrong thinking, by establishing wrong thinking, a pattern of wrong thinking in your life and in mine to keep us from stepping over into what belongs to us, to establish a boundary, a wall, if you will, that keeps us from stepping over into what Jesus purchased for us to enable us to reign in life is the same thing that he's done not only on an individual level but on a corporate level where the church as a whole is concerned. It all comes down to the same thing, wrong thinking. But Jesus said, upon this rock, the knowledge of who he is and what, he's, what he accomplished, he would build his church. And notice what he said about his intent 
to build the church. He said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but I'm really not worried too much about the devil attacking me with a gate. A gate is not an offensive weapon. Oh, but Pastor Mike, the fiery darts of the wicked. Yeah, you know what most of those fiery darts are? Wrong thoughts. Yeah, there's some circumstance. There's some adversity we're going to have to deal with. Jesus said so, but he said, don't be concerned about it. I've overcome the world. In other words, that's part of reigning in life is overcoming the fiery darts of the wicked by holding up the shield of faith. In other words, by faith, you have access into this grace, the finished work of Jesus, wherein we stand. It all ties together. It's not different messages. It's one message spoken in different ways. Well, why are the gates important? Because the gates are the the part of the strongholds that keep you out of thinking right to take hold of what belongs to you. And notice what it says. It says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One translation says, well, more than one, but uh, several translations say, shall not hold out against it. I like that. The gates of hell shall not hold out against it. The gates of hell shall not hold out against it. You know, in medieval days, you know how they used to fight? Certainly, armies would go out and they would war against one another. But if, uh, if there was a city that one country or one people wanted to take from another city or from another people, what they would do is they would surround it. It's called besieging it. And they would cut off their lines of supply. You couldn't get food or water in or out. That's why many cities were tried to, uh, uh, were, uh, most cities attempted to build around water sources so that nobody could come and cut it off. But even in cases like that, they would divert rivers. Enemies would divert rivers so that water couldn't get to the city. Second Kings chapter 7 tells about a time where um, uh, Syria besieged one of the cities of Israel. And it doesn't tell us how long that it went on, but it, it was so difficult. It was so terrible that um, two mothers made a deal with one another. One said, we'll kill my son and boil him and eat him today. And then tomorrow, we'll kill your son and boil him. And the second mother didn't keep up her end of the bargain. And so she, the first mother goes and complains to the king about it. Hey, this isn't right. We made a deal. I killed my son yesterday. Her, she's supposed to kill her son today. Now, I don't know how much worse things can get than that. I mean, that's just yuck, you know? I mean, how I can't even imagine that. But I think we could at least agree that times are difficult, right? Well, God turns things around and causes the, the enemy army, the Syrian, uh, Syrian army, to fight against itself. And so the next day, everything turns around. But my point is, they besieged it. Now, how long does it take for a city to run out of food? How long does it take for a city to run out of water? I don't know the answer to that. I guess it depends on the city and the circumstances. But the point is, the city could not hold out because they didn't have resources. You know what um, uh, F.F. Bosworth used to say something? Brother Hagin used to make this statement about him. He said, F.F. Bosworth would say, feed your faith and starve your doubts. Now, we don't have any examples in uh, in the Old Testament about Israel besieging other enemies, cities. 
But what we do have is we've got an example in the book of Joshua about Israel taking hold of the promised land. Now, the promised land represents everything that belongs to us through the finished work of Jesus. Israel came out of uh, Egypt. God enabled them to cross the Red Sea on dry land. You remember that. First Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that the crossing of the Red Sea was a type of salvation. That's where they were delivered from the bondage or the, the that which represented sin and death. And their enemy was destroyed. Now, in our case, our enemy, the devil, hasn't been destroyed in the sense that he doesn't exist anymore. But his power has been destroyed by Jesus. Well, if his power has been destroyed, why do we have so much trouble with the devil? Wrong thinking. We're not taking hold of the abundance of grace. It all comes down to the same thing, folks. Well, if the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea and coming out of Egypt is a type of salvation, what is taking the promised land a type of? Some people will say, well, the promised land is heaven. Well, you're not going to have any enemies to fight in heaven. That can't be the example. There were enemies in the promised land. It belonged to somebody else. It was somebody else's territory that God instructed his people to take hold of because he said it belonged to them. You remember the story how the 12 spies went in and looked at the land. They said, it sure doesn't look like it belongs to us. A lot of fruit, a lot of things are just like God said. But, boy, there are people that have big armies over there, and their cities have giant walls around them. It doesn't look like it belongs to us. That's where the devil tries to stop us. Yeah, but the Bible says that the promised land was theirs. Yeah, but everything they saw with their natural eye, everything they heard with their natural ear, Everything they felt about what they saw and what they heard said it's not ours. Yet God said that it was. So who's right? Both can't be right. Who's right? That's the operation of faith. Faith says I believe God no matter what I see or feel. I believe God's word no matter how it looks. I believe God's word no matter how I feel. I believe God's word. Now, if you apply that to the things we've already talked about, you'd have to say, I believe God's word that says I'm made righteous no matter how I look or no matter how I feel. If we apply that to Jesus conquering spiritual death, sickness, and poverty, we'd have to say, I believe that I'm free, justified by the blood of Jesus. I believe that I'm healed, and I believe that I'm rich. Blessed with faithful Abraham, no matter how I see uh, how, how I see things, no matter what it looks like, no matter how I feel. It's nothing new, folks. Same things available for us today as it was for them. But the children of Israel are going into the promised land. The promised land is a type of, it's an example of everything that belongs to us as believers in Christ here on the earth. It's an example of or a type of the Holy Ghost. Baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's a type of healing. It's a type of prosperity. It's a type of well-being in every area. Now, why did God give us an example of how Joshua led the children of Israel to take the promised land? Because it's an example of how you take your promised land. Healing, prosperity, and righteousness. Righteousness in the sense of walking in it, not just being made righteous. Now, what did Joshua do? What did the children of Israel do? Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 16 again. It says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The walls of Jericho are a perfect example of the gates of hell. Perfect example of the gates of hell. They've got a wall around this city that nobody can penetrate. Archaeologists have told us that this wall was 10 stories high and 50 feet deep. That'd be 100 feet high, 
50 feet deep, the size of a 10-story building high, but then even if the wall falls down, it's still five stories high. Pretty big wall. No wonder they were bothered by it. What did they do? God gave Joshua instruction to walk around the city one time every day for six days, and on the seventh day, walk around seven times. And at the end of that seventh time, he gave Joshua instruction, once you do all those things, after the seventh time, on the seventh day, shout, for the victory is yours. Well, wouldn't it have been stupid for everybody to walk around the wall the first day and come back to camp that night and say, well, boy, that didn't work. Yet that's what Christians do. They'll stick their toe into the water and say, well, okay, we'll give this a try. Yeah, that didn't work at all. They went out the second day, walked around the wall one time. What if they'd given up after the second day? Wouldn't have worked. And they could have gone away saying, just like many Christians do, well, we just don't understand. I guess the Bible's not for today. I guess everything in God's word is not really literal for us to take hold of. Third day, same thing. Fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, same thing. At the end of the seventh day, they walked around seventh time. Joshua said, shout, for the city is yours. He said, shout, for the city is yours. He said, shout, for the city is yours. Now, folks, between the time that he said shout and they shouted, which would be just momentary, they have every opportunity to look at the wall and say, huh? Wall's still there, Joshua. All this walking around the city has gone to your head. Can't you see the wall is still there? Folks, the city wasn't theirs because the wall was down. The city was theirs because God's word said it was theirs. Thinking, either right thinking or wrong thinking. So what did they do? They shouted, and the Bible says the walls fell down flat in their place. Now, what in the world does that mean? As I said before, if the wall, the 10-story wall, had fallen flat like that, straight out or straight in, they'd still have 50 feet of wall to, to climb. That wouldn't have helped them much. 50 feet is still too much for them to handle. That's not what happened. Well, what did happen? The earth opened up and the walls fell straight down like they traveled in an elevator, 10 stories, so that now the plane is flat. Can you imagine being inside the city and watch the walls go... Sitting inside saying, nah, 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 they can't get to us. <laughs> now, folks, city after city after city, they took in different ways, but city after city after city, the promised land was occupied, was taken hold of. These gates, or literally the walls of Jericho, could not prevail against God's word. That's what Jesus is saying upon this rock, the knowledge of who he is and what he accomplished. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not be able to hold out against it. Shall not be able to hold out against it. City after city after city, Joshua took them. There were only two times, two occasions that deserve mentioning, and that was where they ran into trouble. The first was when somebody in the camp disobeyed God, a guy named Achan, disobeyed God and took some of the stuff from Jericho and hid it in his in his tent. God said, City of Jericho is like a tithe to me. Don't take anything for yourself. You leave that for me. All the rest of the promised land is yours. It's a type of the tithe. Well, Achan didn't do that. 
Achan saw some of the gold and, and really the stuff that he took, a couple of garments and a little bit of gold, didn't amount to anything. But it caused Israel to suffer their first and only defeat in the promised land. And it was a minor skirmish, but they, they were defeated. Several, uh, a few, you know, small band was defeated and Joshua said, whoa, what is going on here? This is not the way this is supposed to work. We're not supposed to lose anybody. We're not supposed to ever lose. You know, Joshua could have looked at that and said, well, okay, we lost this, but we took Jericho. You know, we, we're still got a winning record here. But no, he said, we're not supposed to lose anybody. We're not supposed to ever be defeated. We're supposed to reign all the time. What is going on? And God said, well, there's somebody in your camp that stole. God tells him who it was. What did they do? They wiped their family out. Wiped them out. Killed everybody in the family. Nope. Not going to let the rest of you, not going to let your family hold out the rest of us from the promised land. We spent 40 years in the wilderness already. We're not spending any more time in defeat. So they, they just wiped them out. Did away with them. Now, the only other time that they didn't take hold of the promised land like they were supposed to was when the Gibeonites deceived them. They sent two people out, and they dirtied up their clothes, made it look like they came from a long way off, and they they took their wineskins and and made them real old-looking and stuff like that. And when they got there, some of the people asked, well, who are you and where did you come from? They said, oh, we came from so far away. We didn't think we were going to make it. Well, what are you doing here? We heard about you and your victory at Jericho, and we wanted to make sure that we made a treaty with you before you started coming over into our land. We're, we live so far away, you might not ever get there, but still we wanted to make a treaty so that you wouldn't harm us. It says that they did not take counsel of the Lord and they made a treaty with these people. Then they found out they were just one city over. So now they got a treaty with a city they're supposed to take and capture. Those were the only two times, only two times in the example that the Bible gives us of how to reign in life, how to take hold of the promised land blessings. Those are the only two examples. One is when they disobeyed God's word. Interestingly enough, it had, it was related to that which represents the tithe, but you read your own meaning into that. And then secondly, when they didn't take counsel with the Lord and they allowed themselves to be deceived. So there's only two things, according to the Bible example, that can keep you from reigning in life. Disobeying God and allowing yourself to be deceived. Otherwise, God's provided for you to have victory in every area. Now, that's what it says. Believe it if you want to or not. And if and if not, you'll have a lot of company. You will not be alone. Don't worry about being outcast. You will have lots and lots and lots of company. Whole denominations will join in with you and say, yes, we're glad you're back. Turn with me over to uh, Matthew chapter 7. uh, Did I leave you in Matthew? Uh, Wait a minute. Before you leave Matthew 16, I've got to read verse 19. Verse 18 again, and I say unto you, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, the knowledge of who Jesus is, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail or hold out against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of, literally the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I I can't leave this without making mention of the fact that reigning in life has a lot to do with what you decide you will allow or refuse. Notice it starts with you. It does not start with heaven. It starts with you and heaven backs you up with whatever your decision is. 
You refuse sickness in your life, heaven will back you up. You allow sickness in your life, heaven says, okay, your call, your life, your call. You refuse to allow poverty in your life because Jesus paid the price for it. Heaven says, we'll back you up on that. Now, what does it mean for heaven to back you up? I can't help but believe that that's the work of angels. We're teaching a lot on angels here on Wednesday nights, and so I'm starting to see angels a lot of places that I wouldn't have thought to otherwise. But what would heaven backing you up mean? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What does that mean? Okay, you refuse to allow sickness in your life, so God won't allow sickness in heaven. Folks, there is no sickness in heaven. It doesn't mean he's going to stop something there. It means heaven backs you up. Heaven's power backs you up on your decision. You refuse to allow poverty in your life. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean you'll never be attacked with sickness. It doesn't mean you'll never be attacked with poverty. It means you refuse to let it stay because Jesus paid the price. Then heaven backs you up. Now turn back with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus makes some interesting statements here. Or the Bible makes some interesting statements about him. Let's start reading in verse 24 of Matthew 7. It says, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. And acts on them. That's part of receiving the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. To act on something. Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. I wonder if that's the rock that is talking about that Jesus builds the church on. Think those might, might, do you think those might be related? And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not. Notice everybody hears the same thing. Some just choose to act on it and others choose not to. Shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now folks notice the sayings are the same and the storm is the same. The difference is one acts on it and succeeds or stands and the other fails to act on the sayings of the word of God and falls. That's the only difference. No difference in the individuals except what they choose to do. No difference in the word of God. No difference in the storms. The only question is, do you want to stand? Do you want to make it or do you want to fall? Jesus gives you the how. He says, just do the word. Be a doer of the word. James said, being a doer of the word will cause you to be blessed in your deed. In other words, victory is yours to the degree that you act on the word. This isn't rocket science, folks. It's really pretty simple. And it came to pass, verse 28, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one. I'm reading from the King James. He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, I understand why the translators translated it this way, but they didn't do us a a very good service here. They did us a disservice, in my opinion. Because, first of all, notice the word one. If you're reading with the King James... You'll notice the word one is in italics. That means whenever you see a word in italics in the King James, it means the translators added it. It does not say he taught them as one having authority. It says he taught them as having authority. See, now it's easy to read this and say that that what the Scripture is saying is Jesus showed them that he had authority. That's not what it's saying at all. 
having authority, the word having means Uh, Well, let me back up. Notice it says, he taught them as having authority. The word as means how. It means the manner to. The word having means to hold. Literally, it says he taught them how to hold authority. Now, why would they be astonished at Jesus when Jesus has just explained to them that the key to success in life is to do the word? He didn't say anything about himself. He's saying the key to, to, to weathering the storms, coming out successfully through the storms of life, is to do the word of God. Why would they be astonished at him when he says the key is to be a doer of the word? That doesn't make sense. Why would they say, wow, Jesus, you've got authority? Why? Because I told you that doing the word will help you stand through the storms of life. Failing to do the word will cause you to fail. That means Jesus has authority? It doesn't make sense. Literally, this translates, he taught them how to hold authority. Now, if that's what he's saying, if that's what the Bible is telling us, that would be something for them to be astonished at. Because he didn't teach them as the scribes. The scribes were notorious for saying, and the Jews still do this today. You get two Jewish people together, you have at least three opinions. Because they say, well, it could be like this, or it could be like this, and, and, and it could even be like this. That's the way the scribes taught. The scribes said, well, the law and the prophet says this. Well, the law means this, but the prophets, we don't know what they meant. It could have meant this, and it could have meant that. People came away from the teaching of the scribes not knowing what in the world to think. And that's what this is saying. Jesus taught them how to hold authority, not like the scribes. Maybe it's like this, maybe it's like that. He said, this is the way it is. You be a doer of the word, and you'll succeed in life. No matter the storms that come against you, no matter if other people fall, you will succeed in life. You will be a success. You will reign in life in whatever you do. Those are my words, but that's the same meaning. Here's how you reign in life. You be a doer of the word. And they were astonished. Notice this. They were astonished at his doctrine. It does not say they were astonished at him. It says they were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he's teaching them how to hold authority. Nobody's ever taught them that before. He's showing them, you have authority. Here's how you reign in life. For he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Now, chapter 8 is all about examples of authority. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Only one time in all of Jesus' ministry did anybody come to Jesus and say, I believe you can. I just don't know if you will. Yet I would submit to you that that is the majority thought among the body of Christ today. Oh, sure, God can do anything. God can heal. We just don't know if he will. One example in all of Scripture where one guy had that attitude. So whatever God's attitude and answer is in his case should be the example for us today because God doesn't change. Sickness sure hadn't changed. People haven't changed. Why would we assume that God changed? He says, I'm God, I change not. 
Furthermore, the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means whatever Jesus was like here in Matthew chapter 8 is what he's like now. That means whatever his will was then is his will now or else he's changed. Folks, I know this is simple. But I think too many people fall over the simplicity of it. They stumble over the simplicity of it. It's impossible for Jesus' attitude to be different toward us than it was toward this guy because he never changes. So all we have to do to find out what Jesus' answer is today on will he heal the sick is look at what he did with the one guy that came and said, will you heal me? Will you heal me? What does he do? Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. Mark 140 says, immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and said, I will. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now notice uh, down in verse 5, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. Literal translation of this is Jesus said, having come, I will heal him. Jesus is not just saying, now he, he does mean this too, but he's not just saying I will come to his house. Jesus is saying, because I've come to the earth, I will heal. Because I was sent from the Father, I will heal. But the centurion stops him and says, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. You don't find many people taking that position. Who's going to say, no, Jesus, I don't want you to come to my house. Do it this way. Speak the word only. But he explains why he takes this position. He says in verse 9, for I'm a man under authority. He understood that a sickness had something to do with authority. He understood that healing had something to do with authority. For I'm a man under authority. Having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus said, who are you to tell me how to do things? Or he didn't? Is that what he said? Jesus heard it and marveled and said to them that followed, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. I wish I could find a Jew that believed like this. That's what Jesus is saying. I wish I could find one of my own people that believed like this. Jesus recognizes this as a, as a, a characteristic of, of great faith. If he says, I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel, that must mean it's great faith, wouldn't it? Because he has found other faith in Israel. He's had other miracles and other signs and wonders done in Capernaum, but he singles out this guy's faith. Well, those other miracles couldn't have been done except by faith. And so this guy, coming to Jesus' recognition as having some kind of exceptional measure of faith or type of faith, must be great faith. And what does he say? What does Jesus identify as a characteristic of great faith? The willingness to accept the word alone. The willingness to accept the word on its own. Jesus said, Verily, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying... Salvation is not just for the Jews. 
But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A lot of the Jews, a lot of Israel will fail to believe. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done uh, unto thee. And his servant was healed in the same hour. Then it talks about Jesus and Peter's mother-in-law. When Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. How did the storm of sickness, how was the storm of sickness conquered in her life? Through the work of Jesus. What's the example for us? The same sickness is conquered in your life by the work of Jesus. Now, Jesus' work was a physical work that was taking place present tense. For us, the work of Jesus is a past tense work where he conquered it on the cross. Same work of Jesus. Same example. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto him. And then when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Please notice the word all. What is the example of Jesus and the work of Jesus regarding sickness and deliverance? He healed all that were sick. Folks, i got to tell you, if it just said he healed most that were sick, we'd consider that victorious except the ones that weren't healed. They probably wouldn't consider that to be too great a day. But notice it says, and he healed all that were sick. Now, why in the world would Jesus do that? Oh, the church will stand up and say, to prove that he was the son of God, to show us that everybody's supposed to come and believe on him. Well, okay, I can accept that to a degree. But that implies that Jesus did things that that can't be done now. Why does the Bible say that he did it? That or so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. That's Isaiah 53, 5. He healed all that were sick to show the true meaning of Isaiah 53, 5. What does Isaiah 53, 5 say? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, if this was fulfilled, meaning the end, it was accomplished in his day, not to be accomplished in any other day, then we would have to say the same ones that were healed by his stripes, we were healed. The same we would have been accomplished and finished and nobody else beyond that point in time where it comes to sins and where it comes to chastisement of peace. If the we of us sins, he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. If that hour means us too, then by his stripes we are healed. That we has to mean us too. You can't say that the sins part's for us today, but the sickness part is not. It's all the same verse. Has to be. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Well, since we know the we of the, of the our sins has to do with us, then that means the we are healed has to do with us too. So what does that mean? Verse 17 is telling us. Here's what Isaiah 53, 5 means. Isaiah 53, 5, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses, means that all can be healed today, just like he healed all that were sick then. I've been, uh, the Lord directed me, uh, well, I don't, I don't know how to say some of this stuff. Um, 
if I say it the way that I'm, I'm accustomed to saying it, some people will hear and I start getting emails and say, Pastor Mike, you said this. Did, did God say that or that kind of stuff? A lot of times when I say the Lord is directing me or, or things like that, I just mean something stirring on the inside of me. I don't know if I'm stirring it up or if God's stirring it up in me. And, and I don't really care. It doesn't matter to me. End result's what I care about. But, but I've been stirred up. Let me just say it this way. I've been stirred up over the last, I don't know, couple of months. Um, I, I changed the way I do things several months back. I don't go to the office much anymore. I've spent 20, over 26 years trying to go to an office. And I realized that I've been there for the people's sake that are in the office. I get less done in the office than I do out of the office. Yet I beat myself up day after day after day going to the office trying to sit there to be there in case something calls for my attention. Well, forget that. Instead of going to the office, now I'm spending time walking, praying. I've got Brother Hagin plugged into my ear, listening to him on the iPod and stuff. And man, I'm telling you what, over the last two, two and a half months, well, almost three now, I guess, shoo. Why was I stupid for so long? Don't answer that. (laughs) But it's just wonderful. Now, don't get me wrong, I'd sit at my desk and pray, but man, something's different about it now. I'm having times with God that I haven't had since I was first filled with the Holy Ghost. And God's talking to me about things. And again, I have to be careful how I say that because I don't always mean words. But I'm seeing things. I'm, I'm being impressed with things. The Holy Ghost is leading me and guiding me about some things. I mentioned earlier that the Holy Ghost is guiding me into certain things, uh, that I've been recognizing that He's guiding me into things like, like I've never seen before. That has a lot to do with that. First thing in the morning, I'll go down to the beach and walk for hours. I love it. it it's the time where I get along with God. So somewhere since I started doing this, I began to pray, and I've been praying specifically for the people in our church that are sick or infirmed. Sick doesn't always mean, you know, disease, but some some people we've gotten to church are experiencing the result of sickness or disease. And um, and I'm just minding my own business, just just praying as I'm walking along. And I heard these words come, come out of my mouth. I've been praying in, in other tongues for a long time. And I heard these words come out of my mouth. Lord, I pray for everybody that is lame and palsied in our church. And when I heard those words, it really caught my attention. And so so now I've been praying that actively. I didn't intend to pray that. That was something that just came out of my spirit. But now I've been praying about that actively. And, um, well, I'm seeing a lot of things. It's uh, It came to my, and I never really thought about this till I prayed it out. We've got a lot of people in wheelchairs in our church. A high percentage of people for the crowd. And everybody that I know of believes in healing. At least the ones I've talked to. I may not have talked to everybody. But everybody that I've talked to believes in healing. But there's something about their condition that's holding out against them. Everybody has... Reached out by faith. Most of them you talk to, at least, uh, again, that I know of. I may not know everybody. But of the ones that I know of, you talk to them about it, and they'll say that I believe that I'm healed in Jesus' name. Well, okay, if they've extended their faith, 
then how is their condition holding out? Now, folks, I don't know if you think about things like this where your life is concerned, but if I've got a question, then I, then I deserve an answer. I'm not afraid to ask God questions. I don't understand why people are. Now, I know a lot of people that question God and then, you know, they'll throw something out there. I don't know why God let this happen to me. And they never really search for the answer. Well, that's just stupid. If you really don't know why on something, find out why. If you do know why and you're, or, or, or you don't care and you're just throwing it out there to try to excuse yourself and blame and put it off on your own God, I don't have any respect for that. But I've been asking questions. And the more I pray for those that are lame and palsied in our church to be healed, the more and more I'm getting. Is there any reason for somebody in a wheelchair not to be healed? Jesus healed all that were sick. Well, I don't know how many crippled people were in that group, but had to be some. It, it says they brought to him. That indicates that not everybody could come on their own. Any reason why not? Now, folks, I know I'm getting into, into dangerous waters here. I get that. I can see the look on some of your faces. I mean, you, you can see people's collars tightening up. What's he going to do? I don't know. I don't have a plan. But um, but the more and more I've been praying about this, the more and more I've been seeing. God's been re- dealing with me a lot about anointings. Isaiah ten verse uh, chapter ten verse twenty seven. The last part of the verse says, "And the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing." The yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Can I show you a couple of things? Now, folks, I, I gotta, I'm going to let you know right now, I don't care what time it is today. This may be a first. So if you need to leave, just feel free. You're not going to bother me. Um, look with me over to, um, look with me to Luke chapter 10, or Luke chapter 9 first. Luke chapter 9. Notice what it says here in verse 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. How did that happen? Do you think Jesus was vague about this? I mean, for the Bible to tell us so specifically, is there any way that this would be vague where the disciples wouldn't know what he was really getting at? Now, the reason I'm saying that is because I want you to consider how much of the church world is so is in this gray zone where it comes to what God will do and what he won't do. Do you see from verse 1 any gray area whatsoever? Is it possible that it could have happened any other way than Jesus saying, okay, now, guys, here, I'm transferring authority to you. I'm giving authority to you. I don't know if he laid hands on them. I don't know if they felt electric shock go through them if he did lay hands on them or if he just said, okay, from this point forward, each and each one of you 12 are going to have authority to cast out devils. You've got authority over all devils and to cure diseases. Now, when it says cure diseases, that implies to me, since he said cast out or, or since he said authority over all devils, diseases must be all diseases too. Because if he's giving them authority to cure diseases, what's he doing? Is he saying, now, Peter, you've got authority over cripples. 
you've got authority, John, over cancer. Now, somebody over here, you've got authority over leprosy. Unless that was the case. And if that was the case, why wouldn't the Bible tell us they're all asking, "Who? what have I got? It has to be the same. He gave them authority over all devils and to cure diseases. In other words, he gave them authority over all sickness, all diseases, and all the devil's power. To cast the devil out of people, to set them free, to deliver them. Is it possible that it means anything other than that? Not if language means anything. If it means anything other than that, and this is the language that the Holy Ghost chose to give us record of it, then he lied to us. I know some people get uncomfortable when I speak things that specifically and that bluntly, but it either is or it isn't one way or the other. Right? So he called his 12 together and gave them power and authority, power and authority, power and authority. He gave them ability and privilege, rights. He gave them ability and the right to exercise authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to do two things, to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. To preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, folks, what's their purpose? Is he giving them a ministry so that uh, so that they don't ever come back to him? Is he saying, okay, now you 12 guys have been with me long enough. You've seen me do stuff. From now on, I want you to go out into your own ministries. Is that what he's doing? Of course not. Well, if that's not what he's doing, what is he doing? He's commissioning them to go in his name to tell about him. These would be short-term mission trips. Now, the short-term mission trip is going to turn into a long-term mission trip as soon as he's raised from the dead. Now, let me stop here long enough to tell you this. The power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases could not have been a feeling. It's impossible. Because in Mark chapter 9, they couldn't make it work with the guy who brought his son who was possessed of the devil. This devil would throw him into the fire. Sometimes they'd throw him into the water to drown him, try to destroy him in any number of ways. They couldn't make it work. And they didn't know why it wouldn't work. So it couldn't have been a feeling. Because if it had been a feeling, they wouldn't have had to ask Jesus, why wouldn't this work? If it had been a feeling, then they would have said, you know, Jesus, we never felt it with him. Never did. Never felt it with him. So if it's not a feeling, what is it? It's them taking Jesus at his word that they have power and authority over devils and all diseases. Feeling can't have anything to do with it. It's impossible. Or else the story in Mark chapter 9 can't be inspired by the Holy Ghost. Now, folks, if we start picking and choosing what part of the Bible is true and what part of the Bible is not true, look, if it's not all true, none of it's true. It comes as a package deal. These folks nowadays that want to say, well, this verse doesn't belong to us. It wasn't written to the church. Please don't insult my intelligence. And that always grows. Same one that said that we, that, uh, uh, that this one certain scripture doesn't belong to us has recently said, well, I don't resist the devil anymore. Jesus does that for me. Well, okay, that means first, first, now, to begin with, first John 1 didn't belong to us. Now, James 4 doesn't belong to us, and first Peter 5 doesn't belong to us. 
Man, I'm getting my Bible before he gets a hold of it. You see what I mean? It's either all true or it's all a lie. There's no middle ground on this, folks. At least there's not for me. Now, you choose. Your authority, whatever you allow on earth, heaven will back you up. So if that's the position somebody wants to take, okay. It's really not a new position. A lot of people have taken that one already. But he sent them forth to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And then he gave them some instruction about what to do and how to do it. Now turn with me over to chapter 10. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 also, other 70 also. And he sent them two and two before his face into every city and place where he himself would come. Then he said some things to him. I won't read the whole thing. Notice it says in verse 9, and heal the sick. One of the works that he commissioned them to do, it says, and heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, the kingdom of God is coming to you. So we know that healing is a part of the work that he sent the 70 out to do. Now, the, the 12 had a different commission than the 70 did. The 70 were to go two by two into cities that he was coming to. The, that was not given, that instruction was not given to the 12. The 12, he just says, go preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. He didn't tell them, all right, here's where I'm going next, and so you go there. The 70, he did. The 70, he had some kind of itinerary planned. He said, okay, we're going to go from here to here to here, so you guys cover that territory and tell them I'm on the way. So it indicates that the 12 had a greater measure of ministry upon them than the 70 did. Can you accept that at least for consideration? Okay, verse 19 or verse 17, it says, And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, if you go back and read the rest of the first part of the chapter, you'll find out not one word was said about the devil. Not one word was said about casting out devils. Yet they found that the same power and authority to heal the sick gave them authority over devils as well. They must have tried it on their own, even though Jesus didn't specify a devil. And when they tried it on their own, they found out, hey, this stuff works even over the devils. Lord, even the devils are subject to us through your name. So that tells us how they're using the healing authority that they have is through his name. And Jesus responds to the 70. Now, these 70 are just laymen, folks. You can't say that the 70 are given or commissioned to some kind of ministry office or ministry gift. If you made that argument with the 12, we'd at least have to consider that. But the 70 are just people that are hanging around. He says, okay, go tell people that I'm coming to the city. And while you're there, heal the sick. They come back and say, we didn't just heal the sick, Jesus. Your name has power to cast out devils. The devil can't do anything to us when we use your name. That wasn't a surprise to Jesus, but it was a surprise to them because it wasn't part of their specific assignment. So Jesus responds to them and says, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. He's not saying Satan fell when you used my name. He's saying Satan was cast out of heaven when he rose up with a third of the angels and thought that he could defeat God. Didn't work real well for him. You folks know how lightning falls from heaven, don't you? How it just floats down. You ever had lightning strike close to where you were? That's how Jesus said Satan fell from heaven. Then he said in verse 19, Behold, I give unto you a power. This word power is literally the word authority. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. 
Now, is he saying, now I'm giving you authority over the devil? No, they're coming back saying, we found out we already have authority over the devil. Jesus is just describing the authority that's in his name. The name of Jesus has authority over all the devil and over all the devil's power, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So the name of Jesus covers not only authority over sickness, it covers authority over the devil and over all the devil's power and divine protection. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. That's protection, isn't it? And nothing shall by any means hurt you. That means there's not one way that the devil can bring against you that using the name of Jesus, which is one of the keys to the kingdom of heaven, whereby we're supposed to reign in life, there is not one work of the devil, not one thing he can conjure up that will enable you to be hurt. That doesn't say you won't be attacked. It says it won't stay. It won't last. It won't have a lasting effect upon you. Now, if the gates of hell shall not prevail against us, and God gave, Jesus gave his, his disciples authority here on the earth over all the, uh, over all devils and to cure diseases, if he gave the 70 authority to heal the sick and that same power works as far as the devil is concerned, if he gave authority to the church through the gift of righteousness and the abundance of grace to reign in life, that would have to include reigning over sickness, wouldn't it? Then how is sickness able to hold out? Jesus said that it wouldn't. He said the gates of hell, that means everything that's in the devil's territory. Sickness is in the devil's territory. Healing is a part of what Jesus accomplished that the devil is trying to wall off from the Christian, from the believer, to keep us from taking hold of. It's that which is inside the city of Jericho. And there's a wall that's set up between us and it. Well, what is that wall? That wall is the stronghold that the Bible says to pull down, which is wrong thinking. That's the only stronghold the devil has. It's the only way he can work. Yet the Bible says that built upon the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Sickness, specifically, like we're speaking of at this moment, sickness shall not prevail against it. It cannot hold out. So, I'm back to my original question. Lord, what about the people that are lame and palsied in my church? Now, don't get me wrong. They're not the only ones I prayed about. They're not the only ones I care about. I care about anybody that's sick. But they're certainly the most obvious example of sickness and disease, right? Or at least the effect of that sickness and disease upon them at one time in their lives. Right? What are we to do? How does this work? Well, it's real easy to think, well, certain people have gifts of healings. Peter, you look at the people Peter healed in the book of Acts, nearly everybody was lame or palsied. Doesn't say anything about blind eyes opened in Peter's ministry. And so it's real easy to start thinking, well, certain people have certain things, you see. and It's real easy to make excuses. You can even find scriptural support for your excuse. Doesn't mean it's right. But you can build scriptural excuses that support wrong thinking. But as far as God's concerned, is healing somebody that's crippled any harder than healing somebody that's got a headache? 
I mean, does God have to work extra hard for somebody that's crippled? That a headache's just an easy day? Folks, that's not the way it works. So, what are we to do with this? What does this mean? Turn with me over to James chapter 5. Verse 14 and 15. You know these verses? It says, is any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church. Now, the word sick means beyond doing something for themselves. P.C. Nelson, which was the foremost Greek authority in his day, said of this word sick, it literally means not just somebody that's infirm, not somebody that's, that's being attacked. It means, is there anyone among you that's in undergoing something beyond what they're able to take care of for themselves? See, we should all believe God for our own healing. I think one of the biggest lies the devil's trying to put on the, the world today is that we need health coverage and health care and, and, and doctors and stuff like that because you, you never know. Tomorrow you might wake up with a headache and you, you might need to run to the hospital over that. And there's this, this, at least it seems to me, maybe I'm misreading it, but you decide for yourself. It seems to me that there's this prevailing attitude or growing attitude among the people in this country that, that you've got to have every little thing in your life covered by insurance because you just never know what might happen and, and you, you gotta be able to run to the doctor for any and every little thing that might come up. Where do we get that? I understand that's a political agenda. I get that. I don't want to get sidetracked. But the attitude, and, and, it's, and it's in the church too. You get, you get Christians that, um, um, well, who's the, who's the king in the Old Testament that said uh, so-and-so was sick and didn't, go, didn't consult the Lord about it and he died? Hezekiah, was it Hezekiah? Yeah, Hezekiah was sick and didn't consult the Lord and he died. The impression is, the implication is, that we ought to go to God for anything that comes against us. Well, I, I, why is that such a foreign concept to Christians? I'm talking to God about everything that comes against me. I talk to him a lot about the big stuff that comes. But, um, but here where it says, is any sick among you, it literally means, is any of you beyond doing anything for yourself? We should take care of the things. We shouldn't run to somebody else for every little thing that comes up. We should know God enough and know his word enough to where we take hold of the things that we can by faith. But, but just like in the situation where we're talking about people that are lame or palsied, those are situations that where they're going to need help with, and rightly so. That doesn't mean everybody has to. It doesn't mean everybody is, is required to, that God expects this of everyone. But God makes this available to somebody that gets in a situation that's too big for them to handle on their own. And that's what this is about. It's about helping somebody out of something that they can't get help for themselves. So it says, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Now, when it says any sick among you, is that qualifying anybody? I mean, the, the, uh, I started to say the converse. That's not the right word to use. But where it talks about is any sick among you, wouldn't that mean that whatever he's going to tell has to do with all those, has to do uh, concerning or pertaining to all those who are sick? Any and all are kind of interchangeable terms here. Because the any, any means everybody, and the everybody certainly would have to mean all. 
So what he's giving us is he's giving us a plan for all that are sick in the church. Right? That means healing. If, if the answer he gives us brings healing, then healing is available for all in the church. So he says, is any sick among you? Let them call. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them. Them, the elders, pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now, I looked this up. Let me open up my thing here. This word save is the word, the Greek word sozo. It's used in a number of different ways. It's used three times as healed. It's used um, mostly for save and saved. But it's also used for well and is used as whole. It's used uh, in Mark chapter 5, verse, um, what is it, verse 35, I think it is, where Jesus said uh, to the woman with the issue of blood after she had been healed, it said, daughter of thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. That's this word translated save in James 5.15. So we could say that this verse could be translated in the prayer of faith shall make whole the sick. Well, what would we understand by that? It's talking about healing, isn't it? It's translated healed in Acts chapter 14 verse 9 where it talks about Paul and um, his company at the, uh, in the city of Lystra and there was the impotent man. And it said the same heard Paul speak who Paul beholding perceived that he had faith to be healed. This word healed is the word sozo. Well, we understand that means physical healing because that's what happened. Paul says with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and walked. This was a crippled guy that had faith to be healed. The same healing is talking about in James chapter 5 pertaining to everybody that's sick in the church. Here's the answer for that individual's healing. Or for those people's healing. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And now, now we could argue, and the church has argued, the church is good at, at arguing. But there's been big arguments about what makes up the elder. Well, folks, I don't want to get into the argument, but could we all accept that elder has to mean the pastor? If it doesn't mean the pastor, who does it mean? Paul appointed elders to be in charge of the churches when he'd leave town. Well, he's appointing people to do the work of pastoring. Now, since it took a while for people to be raised up into the ministry gift of the pastor, there were sometimes the older people that were chosen to be in charge, but they're doing the work of the pastor. So James, who is a pastor, talking to how healing should work in the church, and he's the only one that does. Paul tells certain things about healing and the healing work of Jesus. Peter tells certain things about the healing work of Jesus. But James is the only one that tells how healing should work in a local church. Because he's the only pastor that writes a letter. He's the only one. And as a pastor, he's saying, here's how healing should work in the local church. Healing, number one, should work for everybody. Certainly, you should be able to take healing for yourself in certain instances, but there are going to be certain times and certain situations where you're going to need help. And here's how it works for those. Let the individual call for the elders of the church. That's got to be the pastor. I believe it's the pastoral staff, but it certainly has to include the pastor. Has to. Which indicates that it has something to do with the anointing on the office of the pastor. Now that raises an interesting question. Folks, I'm just talking to you about things that God's talked to me about. This may or may not mean anything to you. I don't know. You may be checked out already. Okay. 
But what's the difference in what James is saying and what Jesus said to the 12 where he gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases? What's the difference? What's the difference? His word is declaring what the pastor's part is in healing the sick in the local church. His word declares what he gave to the apostles in Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 9, I should say. Luke chapter 9, where it comes to ministering and delivering people and ministering to the sick. What's the difference? You know what the difference is? Our thinking. We think there's a difference because what Jesus delivered was of greater power, of greater value because he did it in person. Really? Paul said, we have access into this grace whereby we stand. Folks, if there's not something that I have as a pastor, I didn't, I didn't decide to come here. This was not my place to choose. I didn't even know about this place. I had to look it up on a map when God told me to go there. I had to look up on the map, see where I was going. God sent me here to start a church. Well, if there's not some kind of anointing that goes with that, what are we doing? If it's not a, if it's not a position that has some kind of spiritual power, and, and I would submit to you, you can look at the things that we've overcome just to make it this far and identify that there is. But if there's not... What are we doing? How do you know I'm telling you the truth? I'm only going by the word, and if I get off of the word, then you need to get off me. So if there's no supernatural, if there's no spiritual power attached to the office, then we're wasting our time. But if there is, as we mentioned, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 27, the last part of the verse, and the, the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Then that means there are bondages. There are things on the other side of the wall in Satan's territory that we can take hold of and break through the wall by the anointing that God places on certain people, individual offices, whatever the case is. Folks, if God's not going to help me, I don't want to do this. I don't really. Without the help of the Holy Ghost, I don't want to pastor. Without the help of the Holy Ghost, I don't want to be, even be in ministry. People are too big a pain. <laughs> Just being honest. I'm sorry. I didn't mean you. I meant the guy sitting next to you. So is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith shall save, heal, or make whole the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. I've been praying. We've been praying a lot for, for several years in uh, prayer school about uh, Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 1. Ask if the Lord reign in the time of the latter rain. And he's, the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. I recognize that that's a move of the Holy Ghost for the last days. I've been praying for, for an outpouring of rain. I, it's just been recently that I've recognized that I've been praying for a flood. And the Bible doesn't talk about flood. It says showers. Showers are scattered. Showers are intermittent rainfalls. And I've been looking for floods. I've been looking for a flood to cover the earth. 
Bible says the, the knowledge of the glory of God shall cover the earth like waters cover the sea. So I've been thinking floods. I've been thinking, oh, gosh, there's going to be something. No, there's not. There's going to be rain showers. There's going to be Holy Ghost outpourings. The Bible said so all the time. I just had my own idea. Wrong thinking. But there are going to be outpourings of the Holy Ghost. Now, how does the Holy Ghost manifest himself? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us the Holy Ghost manifests himself in utterance, in revelation, and in power. So it would stand to reason then that we're going to have outpourings of the Holy Ghost or showers of rain. Then there's going to be showers of revelation. There are going to be showers or outpourings of utterance from the Holy Ghost. And there are going to be showers or outpourings of power. And much of that power has to do with healing power. Gifts of healings, working of miracles, and special faith make up the three manifestation gifts of the Spirit, or the three ways the Holy Ghost manifests himself in power. Well, it would stand to reason that those things are going to be poured out here and there. Not all the time, not every time we come together, but here and there, right? So I recognize that. I'm seeing these things all along as I go. And folks, this is not new revelation to me, but I'm seeing them in new ways. And so... I'm praying, okay, Lord, that's what we need. We need showers of rain. I need showers of healing power to heal the people that are lame and palsied in my church. Well, boy, I was happy with myself. Man, I'm on the right track. I've got Holy Ghost direction on how to pray now. And you know what the Holy Ghost said to me? He said, I've called you and anointed you to heal the lame and palsied in your church. Really? That's not how this is supposed to work, folks. See, I know. I was with Brother Hagin. Jesus appeared to Brother Hagin, took the right, the right forefinger of his right hand, placed it in the palms of each one of his hands, said, I've given you a special healing anointing for the sick, to minister to the sick. He told him, whenever you tell people, tell them, that I appeared to you, tell them that I placed the finger of the, my right forefinger in the palm of each one of your hands. He said, if they'll believe that you're anointed, that healing power will flow out of you and into them. It will affect the healing and a cure in them from the top of their head to the soles of their feet. I know how this works. Jesus appears to you and tells you. Why did Brother Hagin have to tell people that Jesus appeared to him? Why was it necessary for them to have to believe that Jesus appeared and gave him a special anointing to minister to the sick? Why was that important? James didn't say anything about that. Because Brother Hagin wasn't a pastor. He wasn't operating in the office of the pastor. And since he was sent to more than just one local congregation, that means it would work for those and only for those who would believe, first of all, that Jesus appeared to him. Secondly, that Jesus anointed him. And then that healing anointing would flow. I'm not sent to the world. I'm sent here. So when the Lord spoke to me and said, I've called and anointed you to heal all that are lame and palsied in your church. I don't take that just to mean those individuals and nobody else. I take that to mean here's the answer to the prayer I've been praying. Why? Because the Bible says so. Folks, do you realize that Jesus found himself in the word Luke chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus stands up in Capernaum in the, in the synagogue and he finds the place where it's written in Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. What's he anointed him to do? To preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, 
preach deliverance to the captive and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus closed the book, sits down, and says, this day is that scripture fulfilled in your ears. What did he do? He found himself in the word. And he told people, I found myself. This means me. Paul did the same thing. Acts chapter 13, after Paul is cast out of the synagogue or about to be cast out of the synagogue, Paul says, I'm leaving you because I found myself in the word. He finds Isaiah. And he finds in the book of Isaiah where it says, I'm sending you to be a light to the Gentiles. He found himself in the word. Do you realize you're supposed to find yourself in the word too? Everywhere the Bible tells you that what Jesus accomplished for you, you're supposed to find yourself in that word and step over into it. Now, what happens is we find ourselves in the word and we say, well, that can't mean me. How many times have you heard me preach on James 5? If you come to healing school, I'm there a lot. And what do I emphasize? I always emphasize the prayer of faith. But now I've got the Lord telling me I've called and anointed you to heal the the lame and the palsied in your church. The heck you say. Now, folks, we've had people healed all throughout the church. I met a little girl in a um, newcomer's thing just a week or so ago, when, two weeks ago. I'm not sure when it was, recently. And she told me that, uh, that her mom, that we laid hands on her mom in healing school three years ago. And her mom had cancer and the cancer disappeared. And the doctor said, we don't know what happened, but it's all gone now. And, you know, she was excited. Well, that was three years ago. I never knew anything about that. I wonder what other stuff's happening that I don't know about. I wish I'd know about it. It might help me might help me to understand some things. But what I'm telling you is very simply this. God's made a way. He has told us, here's how it works in the local church. He's saying to the pastor, James is writing to every pastor that ever pastors, if they're really called and, and, and sent of God. He's saying to every pastor, you're the one, you're the means whereby just like Jesus delivered anointing to the disciples and they went out, the 12, just like he delivered an anointing to the 70 and they went out, he's saying, pastors, you're the one that's anointed to heal all that are sick in your church. Now, folks, you know how I feel ever since he said that? Nothing. I wish I did. I wish when he said that it was like a bolt of lightning. (laughs) Yes! You just get your little self down here and see what happens. I don't feel anything. Frightened, if anything. Because the same thoughts come to everybody. What if you lay hands on somebody that's crippled and they don't get up? Like it's my responsibility. Like I can do anything about it anyway. Brother Hagin, I'm going to have to see one of his sayings here. In case you're wondering, I can't heal a gnat's wing. I can't heal a fly's eyeball. I don't have healing power. No other man does either. But we have anointings. We have anointings. Folks, healing belongs to the church. There is not supposed to be in the church that Jesus is building. I won't just say intends to build. I'm saying is building. There is not supposed to be any sick in the church. 
Now, I don't pretend that I could take this to some other church and make it work because I'm not sent to another church. But I'm telling you this. I'm saying it by faith. And the more I say it, the more I meditate on it, the more sure I am. I'm telling you this. I can make it work here because this is where I'm sent. I can make... Now, please don't clap. Please don't clap. I'm, I, I hope that you're glad because it works. But what I'm telling you is that's how true the word is. It has nothing to do with me. The fact is if God can make it work through me, it's just proof that he can make it work anywhere. But I know it works here. I know it works here because I have just as much confidence as if I was one of the 12 in Luke chapter 9, verse 1, where Jesus said, okay, I'm giving you authority over all devils and uh, to cure diseases. I've got just as much confidence, if not more confidence than that, because I know the finished work of Jesus. I can make it work here. I can make it work here. So what you going to do, Pastor Mike? You're going to call up, call people up and have a healing line? Really wasn't planning to. You know why? Because it says, let the sick call for the elders. It doesn't say, let the elders have a healing line. Now, we'll have a healing line. I don't care. Doesn't matter to me. And there are times where the Lord prompts us to do that. But what I'm telling you is this. And, and I, maybe the way that this is, the reason that this is going this way is for you to decide. I'm telling you, it works. Now, when Jesus said in Luke chapter 4 that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and this day is the scripture fulfilled, that he was anointed to do these things, they didn't accept it. It didn't work for them because they refused it. But it worked for them everywhere else. Or most everywhere else. There were a couple of cities that it wouldn't. Chorazin and Bethsaida, it wouldn't work. Nazareth, it didn't work. But boy, Capernaum, it sure worked. He had some tremendous miracles and signs and wonders and different things happened in Capernaum. Well, how's it going to go, Pastor Mike? You're going to lay hands on somebody that's crippled and they're going to get up out of the chair instantly? I don't know. You're acting like I've got something to do with it. That question implies that I've got something to do with it. I have nothing to do with it except the authority that the anointing of the office holds. You know, I told you at the early part of the service, it's a new day. It is a new day for me. Don't you call for me to lay hands on you unless you're ready to get well. Because it's going to work. It's going to work. In Jesus' name, it'll work. let's pray Father thank you thank you for your word thank you for the anointing that you've given to us you've given us all individual anointings you've given us all individual authority over the devil in our lives and over sickness and disease but Father you've given us something special as a body of believers Father, I thank you for providing healing for all that are sick in my church. I agree with every person that's attacked with sickness, Father. And for those that will receive on their own, I rejoice with them in the growth and the development of their faith. But for those that need help, I thank you, Father, that those will receive their healing. I thank you furthermore, Father, that this place will be, a no, will be known as a place where Jesus, the healer, is at work. It won't be known for me. It's not my name that will be known, Father. I'll make sure of that. 
but it'll be a place where the name of Jesus is magnified. It'll be a place where the power of God is in evidence. It'll be a place where the knowledge of God's goodness, healing power, the goodness of his healing power is made known. Father, we'll shout it nationwide. Not so that people come to us, so they come to you. Thank you, Father, for the anointing of the Holy Ghost. We worship you, Lord. We worship you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. This is a new day. Thank you, Lord, for this new day. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, let's all stand. Let me encourage you to think on some of these things. Not for my sake, not even for the church's sake. But to identify, if this is a place that God has put you, if this church is a place where God has planted you, if I really am your pastor, there should be power that accompanies that office. There should be revelation of the Holy Ghost. There should be utterance from the Holy Ghost. We're too late in the game to play church, folks. It's time to do the works of Jesus. Amen? Meditate on those things. Pray for the people in the church that you know of that are sick. We're going to see some marvelous things. Remember how Jesus told Nathaniel when he came to him? Jesus explained to him that he had seen him sitting under a tree the day before. Nathaniel said, wow, you, are, you must be the son of God. He said, you believe because I saw you under a tree? You're going to see a lot greater things than this. You're going to see the angels descending and descending upon the Son of Man. I wonder if those angels are still working. Yeah, they are. And when we proclaim the name of Jesus, they work just the same as they did in Jesus when he was here. We're going to see some marvelous things, folks. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.